Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus. And this week we have Juanita Brooks, another wonderful trial lawyer from out west. And she's going to be talking about her representation of John DeLorean. You remember DeLorean. He's the guy who developed the Pontiac GTO, but more famously developed the DeLorean car from Back to the Future. You remember the famous quote, wait a minute, Doc, are you telling me they built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Anyway, you probably remember the drug case that he was charged with, the big cocaine case in the mid 80s. He was acquitted of that case based on an entrapment defense, really rare to raise and be acquitted uh, based on entrapment. But at the same time, he was also indicted in Detroit, where he was from, for racketeering. They alleged that he stole money from a company, diverted to himself. And that's where Juanita Brooks comes in. She represented DeLorean in that big racketeering trial in federal court in Detroit. We're going to talk about what it's like uh, to be a woman criminal defense lawyer representing one of the most famous individuals in one of the biggest trials at the time. And I think you'll really enjoy hearing Juanita talk about her experience, uh, how she's become known as the jury whisperer, and how she's transitioned from criminal cases over to doing civil trial work. We're with Juanita Brooks in For the Defense, next. So today I'm really excited to have Juanita Brooks join us. She is known as the Jury Whisperer. She works at, as a partner at Fish and Richardson. She started out as a federal defender um, where I started. It's the best job I think you can have. Um, she's done over 150 jury trials. We're going to speak uh, with her today about the John DeLorean trial. Uh, welcome to the show, Anita. Thank you very much for having me. I want to talk about this trial because it, it's so fascinating to me. John DeLorean, of course, was the maker of that amazing car that we all saw from Back to the Future. And when you got into the case, he had already been to trial once and acquitted uh, in that drug case, in that entrapment case. But now he's charged in a second case. Can you tell us a little about that one? Yes. Interestingly, the second case actually, I believe, may have been indicted first before the case in Los Angeles, but the case in Los Angeles ended up going to trial first. They were, they were very different cases. The case in Detroit was a much more traditional prosecution of simply alleging that John, um, what they called ran a racketeering organization, the organization being the DeLorean Motor Company, and the purpose of the racketeering organization was, according to the government, um, to allow John to siphon off funds that were meant for the DeLorean Motor Company and instead put them into his personal bank account and use them for his personal business. And so in addition to being charged with racketeering, he was also being charged with mail fraud, wire fraud, and tax evasion. Amazing. Very, really serious charges, obviously. And to be charged in two different places, um, I guess at the same time, I mean, that's a pretty uphill battle. And, and you know, most defendants, of course, don't have the guts to, to try two different cases in two different places. But DeLorean did. What kind of guy was he? Can you tell me a little about him? John was exceedingly charming, um, very, very easy to work with. He put his faith and trust in his lawyers completely. He wasn't one of these clients that liked to micromanage, but he also kept very much to himself. He was a very private person and it was hard to get to know him beyond just the interactions we would have as lawyer clients. Interesting. So it, when you say he doesn't micromanage, I think part of the problem in a lot of these white collar cases is you know, different from our defender cases, of course, where uh, the clients aren't really micromanaging. And in white collar cases, they, you know, the clients want to be involved. And understandably, um, many of them are smart and and um, have built these businesses. It's interesting to hear that that DeLorean was not that way. That's that's different than many clients that we see. No, I agree. Which was why uh, it was it was surprising to me in in many ways. I mean, we we spent every day together, all day in court. We all had dinner together at night, and yet John was always just what we saw. John was the same as the world saw John. It was 
nothing more than that. And your co-counsel was a really well-known, famous lawyer, Howard Weitzman. I think he recently passed away. Is that right? Yes, very sadly, Howard did recently pass away. And of course, he was well-known throughout the country. He represented him also in the LA case and got an acquittal. And then you ended up trying the second case with Weitzman. How, um, how did you get involved in the second case with, with Howard Weitzman? Well, that's, that's actually a kind of an interesting story in and of itself in that I certainly had no involvement in the first case, uh, followed it like anyone else did, but really had, had no involvement at all. But um, Howard and I and our, our families were at a seminar where Howard was going to be speaking. I was going to be speaking. I think I might have been speaking on cross-examination and ended up in a, in a group dinner together. And I ended up sitting next to Howard. And he said, I, I really was, I learned a lot from your talk. How, and then he just says, how would you like to come try the second DeLorean trial with me? <laughs> Amazing. And, 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 and yes, that's how it happened. And at first, my role was going to be fairly small. I was you know, going to help pick the jury, maybe do a witness or two. Um, and then it just sort of ballooned into, we kind of split the trial right down the middle. It's amazing. You know, there's always this, this tension about whether we should go to these seminars or not, because they're, you know, they take you away from the practice and the family, but this one turned out really well for you, I guess. It did. And it was also in Hawaii. So it was ah. hard to turn down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hard to turn down the Hawaii, uh, the Hawaii conference. So, so you get involved. Um, what about Weitzman? What kind of trial lawyer was he? Any good, any good stories about him? Howard was one of the best, and I, I was privileged enough over my career to, to work with some of the best lawyers in the world. And Howard was definitely, I'd say, in the in the top five. He had an instinct for, especially on cross examination, an instinct for the jugular, and he was also an, an extremely good strategist. The problem for Howard in the second case is that John no longer could afford a team of you know, a massive army, I would say, of lawyers. And so it was just me and Howard and a young associate that was working in Howard's firm. And that was it. That was the whole team. You know, it's funny you say that because, you know, most people don't have enough money to try the first case. Um, these federal indictments not only can affect your liberty, but typically bankrupt individuals. It's no wonder there are so few trials. It's so expensive now to try a case. It's, it's incredible, no? Oh, absolutely. And what happened for John was that because of this case, the second trial, the government froze all of his assets. And so because they were going to seize them all, if it turned out that they could prove those assets, first he'd have to be found guilty. Then they'd go into a forfeiture phase where they would try to prove that those assets were actually purchased with dirty money. And so in the meantime, even without having gotten a verdict, they seized those assets. So John no longer had access to the kind of resource he, resources he had in the Los Angeles case. It drives me crazy that the government can seize and freeze assets before a conviction. I don't think many people realize that just being charged with a crime gives the government, in many cases, cause to uh, freeze your assets and, and make you, in many cases, have to go to the defender's office or use a counsel that you would not normally use. It seems so wrong, and, and this is an area of the law that that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It really should. Yeah, um, that's a whole different part of, of the, the world is the forfeiture aspect of it, where they can you know, deny you your property without due process. And then, of course, if you're found not guilty, then you can get your property back. But that can be years down the road. Years down the road, and, and they keep you from it. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's another one of these pressures to, to get folks to plead guilty and work out deals, not just on their liberty, but their assets as well. It's, it's really a pressure point. Um, and when the DeLorean case went to trial, of course, both of them, more cases were going to trial. It's, it's, it's so far down now. It's like almost 98% of cases plead. And one of the tools is this, is this forfeiture. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you, Juanita, about being a, a woman criminal defense lawyer early in your career, because the criminal defense bar, I think, 
unfairly and unfortunately was always dominated by men, you know, especially back then. Um, pretty incredible that you were trying one of the biggest cases in the country. Uh, can you tell us a little about the challenges being a, a woman criminal defense lawyer with, I bet you at that conference in Hawaii, you were probably the one of the few women speaking there. Uh, yes, and we can start with that conference. I think I was the only woman speaking there. Uh, back in those days, so this would have been, what, 1986, I think, so I was 32 years old. And back in those days, there was only one other woman who had the kind of high-profile practice that I did. Her name was Ricky Kleeman, and I believe Ricky ended up stopping practicing and actually being a full-time commentator for uh, Court TV. Right. But Ricky and I kind of looked alike. We both had dark hair. We were, you know, not very tall. Uh, and so people would just com confuse us all the time. It was either Ricky was mistaken for me, I was mistaken for Ricky. I mean, that's how small the world was. Um, female criminal defense lawyers, especially at our level. Yeah. So it was, um, it was a challenge and, and quite lonely. It's not like you could call your peers because you didn't have any to, to brainstorm with or to even just have them commiserate with you. How many folks asked if you were the assistant at that DeLorean trial as opposed to the co-lawyer co trying the case? Uh, it's funny that you should say that. I, they don't ask. They just assume. Right. <laughs> they absolutely assume and they talk to you as if that's who you are until they then see you get up and do something in court. And when I started as a federal defender, I was, again, the only woman. And being Hispanic, every Monday in court, I'm going to come over invariably bring their Spanish-speaking client with them and say to me, you know, tell him he's pleading guilty today. So I'd say to him, you're pleading guilty today. And the guy would say, no, tell him in Spanish that he's pleading guilty. And I'd say, well, you're pleading guilty in Spanish. And he says, no, you, you speak Spanish. And I said, well, my Spanish is a bit rusty. And they'd say, wait, what kind of an interpreter are you? Oh, my God. And of course, they would just assume, because I was sitting what they call, you know, in front of the bar, they just assumed that I, there's no way I was a lawyer, so I must have been the interpreter. And that happened pretty much every Monday for the three years that I was at several defenders. It's insane. And, you know, I bet you not just other lawyers underestimated you. I bet you the witnesses underestimated you quite a bit, too, when you went up to the podium. Well, that was the beauty of it. <laughs> they did. And they never saw it coming. And so in that trial, for example, I remember very distinctly two witnesses that I cross-examined that started with a big smile and kind of almost a smirk on their face um, and ended looking very upset. I bet. I bet. You know, I tell a lot of folks that there's no better experience for an aspiring trial lawyer than the Federal Defender's Office. You know, how important was that experience for you in San Diego and and can you tell us a little about that office and your beginnings there? I'd be happy to because uh, my boss, John Cleary, passed away sadly. Uh, and we just had his memorial not very long ago because we had to put it off as a result of COVID. But it truly formed me as a lawyer. John um, insisted on the best that you know, we put in 80 hours a week. We see our clients within 24 hours of getting their files and that we conduct ourselves with the height of professional ethics, but at the same time being zealous advocates. And I ended up, in the three years that I was there, I probably tried 30 cases. Amazing. So where do you get that kind of experience? And I had just turned 23 when I started in that office. So imagine you're a 26-year-old lawyer with 30 federal felony jury trials under your belt. Right. It really did shape me. And all of these, you know, big firm, uh, you know, what they call litigators, you know, if they try one case in their career, it's a lot. And you come in to private practice uh, in your mid-20s having 30 under your belt. It's really amazing. It has served me well over the years, no doubt. I bet. I bet. Um, so let's turn to the trial itself and jury selection. Um, obviously, you know, the case involved lots of money. And the allegations were that the money was being funneled to DeLorean's personal account. Um, the defense, I think I have it, was that this was a loan from a businessman. But of course, the businessman was, was not alive at the time of the trial. 
um, and, and DeLorean didn't end up testifying, the loan wasn't on paper. There wasn't a lot of paper records about it. Seems like a really uphill battle for the trial. So tell us a little about when you go into that trial, what, what kind of jurors are you looking for and, and how do you get ready for jury selection? So one of the things, the biggest thing that we had to be concerned about is that John's first trial had gotten so much publicity. Every day at the end of the day, the lawyers would be on the courthouse steps. There would be a huge press conference. And they kept showing on the news over and over again, John being shown this suitcase full of cocaine and him saying, you know, this looks as good as gold. And even though he was acquitted, people who didn't follow the nuance that he actually didn't commit any crime. It was entirely the agents who agreed with each other to do this. And all John did was look at this suitcase of cocaine and quite shocked, you know, he was shocked to see it in there and said, wow, this stuff's as good as gold. He didn't accept it. He didn't spend it. He didn't ask for it. But most people didn't know that. And so they assumed he got off on a quote unquote technicality. And therefore, I would say the vast majority of jurors who walked into our courtroom as part of what they call the veneer in the jury pool all assumed that John had already scammed the government into, you know, or a jury into getting acquitted. And so here he's facing that burden of being presumed guilty rather than innocent. So that was our biggest concern. The judge, Julian Cook, he was a wonderful, wonderful judge. Uh, but he insisted, and I, I understand he can do that as a federal judge in controlling his own courtroom. So he did not let us question the jurors. He was going to do all the questioning. But he did it one juror at a time because he didn't want them contaminating each other. So he would bring one juror into his courtroom and question them. And it took us an entire week to get our jury. And it was right before Christmas, too. So time was sort of running against us. But I think he did his absolute best to get jurors, even if they had heard about the prior case and all of them had, to get those who, when they sincerely said, I can set that aside and I can give John a fair trial and Mr. DeLorean a fair trial, they meant it and they would follow through on it. And so we were fortunate that he did a very thorough idea of each of the jurors. You know, it's so strange, though, seeing federal judges not give the lawyer's voir dire. You know, in state court, at least here in Florida, you get a lot of voir dire. You go into federal court and if you're, you, you're lucky, if you get 10 minutes, of course, it's always funny to me that the state judges who move over to the feds who gave all this voir dire somehow forget their, their roots when they come over. I never understood why judges didn't give voir dire. Um, was it was it unique in this in this case that you had in Detroit, or did you see that? Do you still see that in in a lot of your practice? I, I still see it in quite a bit of my practice, although I've kind of seen a trend over the years in the opposite direction of more judges giving at least, uh, as you say, 10, 20 minutes of attorney-conducted voir dire. I, I think what happened is that back in those days, there were all these stories, especially in California, where the state court judges would allow days and days and days of voir dire where the attorneys weren't trying really to get information from jurors as to whether they could be fair and impartial in this in this case, or if there was something in their background that would make this case the wrong case for them to sit on. Instead, they were trying to kind of indoctrinate them. And I think that really, um, the federal judges saw that and said, well, that's not going to happen in my courtroom. Right, right. Now, I guess he asked a lot about the prior case. Was there a way for you all to spin the prior case? I understand it was indicted first, but was there a way to spin it as the government being vindictive against your client in the second trial, or, or could you use it in any way in your favor at the trial? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, it's hard to it's hard to explain the first trial to the second jury in any kind of meaningful detail. Sure. And so we just had to sort of settle with that when someone becomes the target of, in John's case, it wasn't just the government. It started, he was the target of the big automakers. 
because he was the first person to break away from them and start his own company. And so when someone becomes the target of powerful entities like that, like the big automakers, and then like the federal government, it's very hard to get that target off your back. And that's why it's so important that we have jury trials, because they're the only people standing between the citizen accused and these huge, powerful entities. I see you're ready and to make so your closing again. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did our best to try to empower the jury that they were there to see the justice be done, not to simply be the, the tool of big auto and the government. I've always found it fascinating talking to other trial lawyers about how you find those jurors who are willing to stand up. I mean, what kind of jurors were you looking for? The legend has it that you were looking for jurors that loved the shows Dallas and Dynasty from that time. Why, why were you doing that? So it isn't a legend. It was very much true. And it was actually my idea. And so this is where it benefits to be a woman, because I was trying to see John through the eyes of a potential juror. And if I'm skeptical, which I think everyone was naturally going to be, that somehow $17.5 million was loaned by Colin Chapman, who headed Lotus Motor Companies, to John DeLorean, the personal loan. That, and let me back up for a moment. That money really, if they absolutely traced it, that money went from DeLorean Motor Company to a holding company called GPD, which is another story I'll tell you in a moment. And that GPD holding company was, was Colin Chapman. And he was a private, he had a privately held company, Lotus Motor Cars, that was doing research and development on the DeLorean. So Colin Chapman was free to do anything he wanted with that money. Once he could use it for his company or he could use it for himself, or he could loan it to a friend and he loaned it back to John as a personal loan. But there were no loan documents. It's not like Colin had his lawyers draw up a bunch of loan documents and John signed them and so on. And so I was thinking about, so what did two of the big shows back then were Dynasty and Dallas. And J.R. Ewing or Blake Carrington would absolutely do that. They would absolutely loan $17.5 million on nothing more than a handshake. And so if jurors were watching those shows, they had to be willing to believe that because that's the kind of characters, you know, what they would do on those shows. But the judge wasn't going to allow us to ask any questions and he wasn't going to ask, what's your favorite television show? So how were we going to find that out? And what we did is we convinced the judge to ask a question on the questionnaire. So there's a questionnaire beforehand is what show do you watch the most? And the reason we gave, and it was truly one of the reasons there was also another reason, but the main reason we said is, Your Honor, jurors didn't come in here and say, oh, I've heard very little, because they want to be on the jury. So they're going to say, I've heard very little, I know very little. But if you ask them what show they watch the most, not what their favorite is, but what do they watch the most? And they say 60 Minutes, or they say The Nightly News, or they say, I think they have a show back then called 2020, all of whom had done exposés on John then we're going to know exactly how much publicity they have been exposed to. And so even if they try to act like they haven't been exposed to much, if they list certain shows as the shows they watch the most, we're going to know that. And so the judge put that question on the questionnaire. And I think we had three people answer back that it was uh, Dynasty in Dallas, three women, and all three of them ended up on the jury. Oh, you must have been so happy. Very. And they turned out to be some of our strongest jurors we learned afterward. Amazing. And, and so uh, this is always so interesting to me that, you know, something as small as what TV show you watch, I guess it wasn't so small, such, you know, could have such an impact on who you select and who you don't select. And I think that's why judges should give more fulsome questionnaires and voir dire um, so that we can find out more about our potential jurors, um, but they don't. Another thing that really interests me is that, you know, of course, this case was in Detroit. You're from California, Southern California. I mean, I can't think of two more different places. How do you figure out, you know, what jurors are like in Detroit, how you're going to select Detroit jurors? 
Um, I try cases all over the place too. And that's always a challenge is trying to get your finger on the pulse of the, of the locals. It is indeed. And, and in John's case, in this scenario, we normally would have done focus groups. We would have done uh, screening, community screenings where we just you know, do telephone polls. We would have done a mock trial. But as they say, most of John's resources had been frozen at that point. And so he was able to pay Howard's fee and my fee, and that was about it. So we couldn't do any of those. Um, instead, what we did, though, is we, we watched the coverage very closely so that we could see what the average juror was getting exposed to in Detroit. And we also had a lot of the community actually reach out to us in the form of the people who had DeLoreans would bring them to the courthouse to see if John would, would autograph their I car. love it. I love um, it. And, you know, this is in the days before Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of that. So we had to just rely more on direct contact. And we came away thinking that a juror that would be good for us, they could have worked in the auto industry. That wasn't a, you know, an immediate reason to disqualify them, especially if they worked in the lower levels of the auto industry, where they knew how that the companies were run by the big bosses. Now, we didn't want some executive who would have had bad feelings about John having broken away, but somebody who had worked in the auto industry in, in maybe the lower levels, they might have the same, they would see John as a hero figure. Um, so again, we, we would look for those types of jurors. I see. And, and I understand he didn't have the resources to do focus groups and mock trials. And in your case, how important do you find doing those things when the client has the resources? Do you find them very productive and, and enlightening? I do. It's sometimes very surprising. Someone who you would think would be a very good juror for you or the opposite. Someone who you think would be a very bad juror for you turns out to be a very good one if you can just explore it enough. And for example, I do um, now, I, I represent a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies that are what we call the innovators, the ones who develop the drugs to start with versus the generics who are allowed to, after a certain period of time, copy the drugs. And so you would think, for example, that someone who takes a lot of medication uh, or uh, people on a limited income or elderly who also take, you know, have to take a lot of different medications would be very pro-generic, right? Because they get to and need to take these drugs that are less expensive. But we did some focus groups in that area and it turns out they're not because every one of them has a generic horror story. Huh. And so we went from thinking they would be a badger for us to, to realizing that, you know, you can't make complete generalities, never say never and never say always, but to in general being very good jerks for us. You know, you, you mentioned doing a lot of civil trials now versus, you know, early in your career and with DeLorean doing the criminal cases. How does the criminal practice and the criminal trial experience translate over to civil? I mean, I've always heard I don't do civil work, but I've always heard, you know, a trial is a trial. So if you're a good criminal trial lawyer, you can do civil work and vice versa. Is that right? Absolutely. There, there is very little difference between the two. You know how in a criminal case, for example, you really need to humanize your client, especially if they're not going to testify. Well, yeah. in a civil case, when your client is a company, the job of humanizing them is even harder. Um, and so the skills you pick up as a criminal defense lawyer do translate well over to the civil side. The biggest differences are, are two. One is, in the criminal case, if your client's found not guilty, it's over. Government doesn't get to appeal. Double jeopardy has attached. I didn't realize uh, until I did a big civil trial where we won resoundingly across the board and then the judge took it away from us oh. and said, no, I think as a matter of law, the other side prevailed. And I was sitting there thinking, wait, that's <laughs> my verdict. You can't take my verdict away. Right. Um, so that, that was the first difference I saw. And the second difference, I was very fortunate in that when I first started after 20 years in criminal defense, started doing um, predominantly patent litigation. I was very fortunate in that I 
tended to prevail in trial after trial. And then I had one trial where the jury came back with an adverse verdict. And I, I felt that, you know, sickness in my stomach. And I, you, you just like, you feel horrible when you hear it. Only this time, nobody came and took my client away in handcuffs. Right. No families were sobbing in the back of the courtroom. And my brain was thinking, well, the judge could reverse it and grant judgment as a matter of law right. to my client, or the federal circuit reverses about 50% of these cases so we could prevail at the federal circuit, or we could design the product in a little bit different way so that it no longer infringes. And so it was like, oh, okay, I can do this. Now we can go to dinner. It's not like I liked losing, but the ramifications of an adverse verdict are, are so much less in the in the civil world than they are in the criminal. I always tell people when you lose a criminal trial, it literally takes years off your life. I don't know if you feel the same way, but whenever I lose a criminal trial, like I, it takes a long time to recover. Oh, it absolutely does because again, the consequences are so severe. The minute that verdict comes in adversely, you begin preparing for sentencing. Uh, you've got to work with, you know, get your client ready for the pre-sentence interview and worry about the day of sentencing and know that your chances of getting it reversed by the court are virtually nil and by the circuit court are maybe 3%. So it, it is, it's a terrible, terrible moment when that happens. Again, in the criminal defense world, I was fortunate. I actually had more acquittals than I did guilty verdicts, but there still were some and they were, they were always devastating. I never took them lightly. Yeah. So I have to ask you, Juanita, because I read about it in one of the articles and doing some research for this interview that you were close with Kat Bennett, the uh, famous jury consultant. I'm, I'm sad I never got to work with her. I, I, uh, I know uh, her former husband, Robert Hirshhorn. Tell me a little about Kat and, and um, did she work on the DeLorean case with you? So I'll start with telling you about Kat. Kat pioneered the, the science and art of jury selection, truly pioneered it. And I met Kat when we were both young, young women at the National Criminal Defense College. I was teaching there and she was teaching there and we just instantly connected. Maybe one reason we were the only two women and right. maybe another reason is we were, we were similar in age and, and kind of similar in temperament and we became best friends. And I, I was with her when the diagnosis came back. She mm. had gone in for tests. It didn't look good. She came and stayed with me in California waiting for the test results. And I held her as she passed on at the age of 42 mm. from metastatic breast cancer. And the world lost so much when Kat passed on. But I'm also a firm believer because she was too, that in many ways, she's still here and lives on. Did she, I mean, she sounded like such an incredible woman. Did she work on the DeLorean case with you? She did not on, on this one. She worked on a lot of other cases with me. But again, <clears throat> excuse me, on this one, again, sadly, John, with limited resources, could, could only afford his lawyers and not right. afford anybody else. So he was, we were not able to retain cat services. But I... I did work with her on a lot of other cases and was very blessed to have done that. And she had taught me enough that even though it would have been much better to have her there in person, I kind of channeled her in trying to figure out sure. which jurors we wanted and which ones we didn't. So you have your jury, you have your three dynasty women juries, jurors. You're excited about that. Now it's time for opening. Um, trial you know, goes on for seven weeks. It's a long trial. How do you, how do you get, you know, and summarize such a complicated case um, in a short, easy to understand opening? Because to me, opening is really, really important and getting your theme out there in an understandable way to the jury is, is critical. And so many lawyers complicate things. This is a complicated case, of course. So what's your theme and how do you get it out in opening? So Howard, Howard did the opening. He actually wanted me to do the opening. And I said, you know, Howard, I've been involved in this case for all of a month. I don't, I don't know any, anywhere close to what you know about the case. And the documents were voluminous. And again, this is before the days of databases and having algorithms that can find the bad documents and the good documents and so on. 
So we worked together on an opening that would not necessitate John testifying because it, that was still an open question. Um, and yet at the same time, be thematic and set up our theme, which is that the you know, big, big auto and the government uh, has been out to get John from day one. And this is just one more piece of that. And that at the, at the end, the jurors will see that there was no crime committed, let alone racketeering, wire fraud, mail fraud, tax evasion. There was no crime committed. This was simply a, a business transaction the entire time. And it was very, it was a very short opening. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting major parts of it, but it, that's what we just needed to convey to the jury and to also get them, because remember, we couldn't do, we couldn't question them. So this is the first time to ask them to keep an open mind because we weren't going to get to stand up and put on our case for many weeks. And if they closed their mind halfway through, then we were in big trouble. So we wanted to get them to at least promise themselves internally they were going to keep an open mind until all the evidence was in. It's really important because the government gets to go first. They get to put on their case first. And many people don't realize how huge of an advantage that is that they get to go first. They also get to go last. And, and of course, there's a million psychological studies that going first and last is, is such a big advantage. Um, and so to get the jurors to at least stay open-minded is, is uh, important in these cases. You had mentioned earlier about the story about the GPD loan. Um, is this a good time to tell that other story? Yes, I think it fits very nicely because now in the chronology, we are underway and the government puts on their case. And we had one document and it was an agreement between the DeLorean Motor Company and this holding company called GPD. And that's all we've been given by the government is well, one document. And I believe that was because that was the only document that DeLorean Motor Company had. We didn't have any internal documents from GPD because that was run by Colin Chapman and was based in Switzerland. So we just had this one and the address on it was 121 Rue de Lausanne in Switzerland. And so this is when the whole trial turned because we, I'd like to say we won the trial, but we didn't win the trial. The government lost the trial. They put on an FBI agent uh, who said that he went to Lausanne, Switzerland. He looked at the address, 121 Rue de Lausanne, that is on this contract. And it's a park. There is no GPD. It's all fake. And you could see the jurors like, oh, wow, there's the smoking gun. There is no GPD. This is all made up. And so I, I remember this part so clearly. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was getting ready for that. And it was freezing cold outside. And I was getting ready for the following week. And I was going through all hand, you know, having to hand go through all of this, these documents. And I came across one more that had GPD on it. And it was an invoice from GPD to DeLorean Motor Company, one invoice. But the address on it was 120 Rue de Lausanne, <laughs> not 121. <laughs> and so I take, I remember going and taking it to Howard. I'm like, Howard, look at this. It's a different address. And so, you know, should we have looked into this sooner? Probably, but again, we were kind of doing all this on the fly. So we contacted a private investigator in Lausanne, Switzerland, who went to 120 Rue de Lausanne, not 121. And it's an office building wow. across the street from the park. And in that office building is an office for GPD. Amazing. I mean, and I hope, I hope so you and Howard took a trip out there and took a picture in front of the park. Well, <laughs> never <laughs> did, unfortunately. But the investigator certainly took plenty of pictures <laughs> of the office building and the door that said GPD on it and so on. But then we got to thinking, wait a minute, if there's this one invoice from GPD to the DeLorean Motor Company, and John, of course, had no more access to his, to the, the motor company anymore, the government must have more than this one invoice. And so we went into court and brought a motion that if the government had more invoices from GPD 
And especially if they showed 120 root lozon, which would mean this contract just had a typo, that if the government had those, they had to turn them over. And the government argued, well, we're not saying we have them or not, but if the defense wants them, if they do exist, they have to go through the Hague. Well, I mean, the trial is going to be long over by that. <laughs> right. And I got to argue the motion. And I said, Your Honor, so because we're in the U.S., Mr. DeLorean doesn't get due process. There's something terribly wrong with that. If the government has those invoices, then they have them here in the United States. And we should be able to just subpoena them from the government, not from GPD. Of course. And the judge said, Ms. Brooks, you're right. In this courtroom, you get due process. And then he turned to the government. He said, do you have more invoices? And they said, yes, we do, Your Honor. He said, okay, I want you to turn them over to them. So we walk into court the next day, and there is a stack about half a foot or maybe even a foot high. And they, the government comes to walk them over to our table. And I said, no, 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 no. Leave them on your table. Just leave them on your table. I want this on the record that what you've been sitting on. But I, what I didn't say is not only that, I want it on the record in front of the jury. Right, of course. <laughs> The jury comes in and I say, Your Honor, my understanding is that the government has complied with your order and they have something they want to turn over to us. And the judge turns to the government in front of the jury. He goes, is that right? And they said, yes, Your Honor. And he said, well, please give Ms. Brooks the invoices. And they walk over to my table in front of the jury with a foot of invoices. What a moment. And it was such a great moment. It was such an extraordinary moment. And that's when our whole trial strategy changed. That's when we knew John not only wasn't going to testify, but shouldn't testify because we didn't want to change now the focus away from the government and their malfeasance and on to John. So the only witness we called in our case was that agent who had looked this jury in the eye, said he flew all the way over to Lausanne, Switzerland, and took the picture of the park and Howard did that cross-examination for a day. He went <laughs> through invoice after invoice saying, here's one, 120 rulos on, 120 rulos on, 120 rulos on. And finally he ends with, and you sat here and you looked those ladies and gentlemen of the jury in the eye and you told them you went to 121 rulos on and it was nothing but a park, right? When you knew all along, if you just turned around and looked across the street at all, and you knew that address because you had them on all these other invoices, it was an office building and the GPD was in that building. You knew that when you sat on this stand two weeks ago, didn't you, sir? And you could, you know, you could hear a pin drop. It was so great. What um, a moment. Just, it was a great moment. And I actually have it memorialized because... The way, another way that I got the judge to, to grant our motion was, I said, Your Honor, this is bad faith on the part of the government. They put testimony up here, knowingly, at best, misleading, possibly perjurious, but let's just say misleading testimony, knowing that they had all these invoices. What, did they think that there was a woman sitting in the park with pigeons in her hair? Typing up invoices? Of course not. And the media picked up on that. They loved that image of a woman sitting in the park with pigeons in her hair. And John, who's a very talented artist, drew that for me. And I still have it of a woman sitting in a park with a typewriter and pigeons in her hair and the address 121 through the Lausanne. That is so great. I mean, there's so much to unpack there because you're right. The government had all those documents and not only did they not disclose them and put on misleading testimony, but then when you figured it out, they fought you to, to disclose them at all. I mean, it's just insane. Well, they got away with it up until that moment. I guess they thought they could continue to get away with it. And so that was the beginning of the end of the government's case, because now the jurors were invested. The jurors had been lied to. It's one thing that, you know, John is being wrongfully accused, but now these jurors have been lied to. Right. And so, you know, you, the other interesting point there is that it was sort of up in the air about whether DeLorean would testify or not. And, and you know, 
many folks don't understand that in a criminal case, you have to leave it sort of out there because if, if something like this happens, um, you want the flexibility not to have to call your client, um, but sometimes you have to, and so you want to leave it open. In this case, you had this great moment. So, so you go back and um, how was your client about not testifying? Did he want to testify or he was cool not doing it? Again, as I say, John relied completely on his lawyers. He really did just put his himself and his fate in our hands. And so we said, John, you know, you absolutely have a right to testify in your own defense. But if you get up there, what can you say? You've never been to Lausanne. You didn't know the GPD was in that office building. You didn't have any of these invoices. The key moment in the trial, you wouldn't be able to say anything about um, and yet they're going to cross-examine you on everything else unrelated to this and shift the focus away from their malfeasance and over to you. And he said, you know, I, I can't argue with that. If that's what you think is best, I will certainly go along with it. Sounds like the perfect client. He really was. And he was all, you know, you always worry when your client doesn't testify that the jurors are thinking, oh, you know, what is he or she hiding? or that they don't really get to know them as well as they could. But John was very involved. Like every time we would go to the bench to have an argument, John would come with us. And he was, he was such a gentleman. He would pull out my chair and then the three of us would go to sidebar together. We'd come back, he'd pull out my chair again and I would sit down and the jury saw that, you know, he was, he was very involved. And so he didn't need to get up on the witness stand. In fact, we had another proxy. There was some suspicious document. I can't remember what it was. And there was some handwriting on it. And so they, the government called a handwriting expert who was going to testify that he analyzed the handwriting and it was John DeLorean. And so my cross with that guy was, now you brought Mr. DeLorean in in order to give handwriting samples, right? And yes, I did. And there's a certain way that you do that. You know, you have to get them to give enough samples and not to try to disguise their handwriting or anything, right? Right? It takes a while, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Well, the minute Mr. DeLorean sat down, he said to you, why are you bothering? I wrote that. He told you he wrote that, right? He goes, well, yes, but uh, my job was to prove forensically that he wrote it. I said, okay. So you kept him there for an hour and a half and you had him write this and you had him write this and you had him write that and you had him write this. And then you took it back to your lab and you worked for hours and hours on it. And at the end of the day, you came to the expert conclusion that Mr. DeLorean wrote that. Yes, I did. Well, he'll be so relieved. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) The jury so, must get up laughing because they, they, again, they thought the government would do this big show of like, we got you down, John. When John had said to him at the time, why are you bothering? I wrote that. So good. So good. Things like that. And also, I mean, the simple thing about just pulling the chair out for you, jurors are watching all the time. And so little things like that make, I think, such a difference in, a, especially in a complicated trial. I, I couldn't agree more. And it wasn't, I'm sure the jurors could also tell it wasn't being put on by John. When we would go out to dinner, John would pull my chair out. Right, and, right. you know, normally I might find that patronizing, but I certainly didn't in the case of John. I mean, John treated me as if I was, you know, I was co-lead counsel with Howard. He did not patronize me in any way. He was just, this was just inbred in John. He was a real gentleman uh, so from, the, you know, from the old school, a real old school gentleman. And so I took that for what it was, which was politeness and not that it was in any way, you know, patronizing or demeaning on his part. So let's fast forward to closings now. I think I read that you and Howard split closings. Is that right? That's right. We had an hour, I think. So we split, maybe we had two hours, whatever it was, we split it right down the middle. Yeah. So my partner and I, like to split closings also, Margo Moss and I. So, so I always think it's important for the jury to see both lawyers in closing and to split up the issues. Um, how did you guys split up the issues? Did somebody handle, for example, the burden of proof and somebody handle the, the, you know, the document and the address? Or how did you guys decide how to split the issues? I think we split it up a, a, 
a little bit more kind of thematically. I mean, Howard did do the cross-examination of the agent and showed how that agent tried to liberally to mislead the jury. And he really focused on that and focused on the government overreaching and focused on the vendetta. I focused more because I did the cross-examination of, for example, the handwriting expert, but I also did the cross-examination of what they called a summary witness. So this was the last witness of the trial. So you said, you know, how the government got to go last also. So in a tax evasion case, they can put on an IRS agent who will say, I sat through this entire trial and I looked at all the documents. And in my expert opinion, the defendant is guilty of tax evasion. They're actually allowed to, to, to render the ultimate, what is supposed to be up to the jury to decide. They're actually allowed to opine that it was tax evasion. Crazy. And so my cross with him was again to stay consistent thematically, which is now, Sarah, you're from Washington, D.C., right? Yeah, uh, yes, I am. Uh, so there are no uh, IRS agents here in Detroit. <laughs> you don't have an office. In- <laughs> I love it. And he said, well, yeah, no, no. I mean, there are certainly, but I said, oh, so the call went out for you. Now, this is your ninth time testifying, isn't it? And the other eight times, you came up with the same opinion that the, the taxpayer was guilty of tax evasion, didn't you? So ah, good. now we see why they called you. And of course, objection, oh, Your Honor, I'll move on. So I said, no, you, you got the call, got on a plane, you flew here, you're supposed to be neutral, so look at all the evidence, but you didn't come to see us, did you? Well, I don't know what you mean. Well, the first thing you did was you went and saw the agent. Now I get to tie him with the lying agent. You went and saw the agent about his investigation, not about ours, about his. And he said, I don't know what you mean by the word investigation. Oh, <laughs> and boy. So oh boy. Then I backed up and I talked about how he's done this before and he knows that case agents are responsible for running the investigation that's been into the case. And we got him all the way back to, so the first thing you did was go talk to that agent about his investigation. And he says, I don't know what you mean by the word about. Oh boy. <laughs> and I said, well, at least you know what I mean by the word investigation. So let's try it again. <laughs> and so he absolutely was dismantled. And he was, it was right before Christmas and he looked just like Santa Claus. And he started the cross very charming and he ended it all gnarly and snippy. And he looked, you know, just exactly like you would expect someone to look who was in on the whole scam. He was part and parcel of it. The agent was, and he was, and the handwriting expert was, and the prosecutors were, all trying to set John up once again, just like they tried and failed in Los Angeles. Juanita, I can tell that you're getting fired up again. And and see, you need to do criminal defense trials again. We need you back doing criminal work. Well, I certainly miss it. I mean, there's a lot, there are many, I did it for 20 years. There are many parts that I, I miss, but I, the, the stress of knowing what the stakes are can really get you after a while. So you do the closings, you split them up, the jury's out. There's nothing worse than a criminal jury being out, right? That's the worst feeling we have. We call it verdict death. <laughs> and it's right. true. <laughs> it is verdict death because you're dying. You're just dying every moment. And every time the phone rings, you jump and you can't eat because you're sure the verdict's going to come in while you're eating lunch or, um, and you wait to the end, you know, the end of the day. Um, and you're told the jurors have gone home. You can finally breathe, but not completely breathe because they're going to come back the next day. And you, you know, you try to watch in their faces as they're excused for the day and they won't look at you. And then you think, Oh no, it's, it's going terribly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a, it's a terrible time. But you get the greatest two words that there are in the English language, not guilty. How did, how did uh, John react to that? John was absolutely stoic. He was, he just, he, he knew. I, I don't know how he knew, but he had such faith in us. And I think such faith in himself and his innocence that he knew uh, it was going to be okay. And Amazing. so he, he took it very stoically. I was a nervous wreck because this was my first 
truly internationally high profile. I've done some high profile cases, but not where it was international. So as we're trying to get into the courthouse to take the verdict, there and press started coming in. You know, the minute the jury went out, they, they started pouring in. Um, and we were under gag orders, so we weren't allowed to talk to the press. And so to get run the gauntlet, I mean, they were yelling out questions and John's very tall and I'm very short. And so John, you know, head stood up above the crowd. I'm getting complete. I even got knocked down by, <laughs> by one of the reporters trying to get a picture of John. I sort of got elbowed out of the way and went tumbling down. So just that was overwhelming. And then, of course, waiting for that verdict, I just got more and more nervous. And Howard acted very calm, but I looked over at him and I noticed that all the blood had drained from his face. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, he's nervous too. He's just not showing it, but he's nervous too. So it was just joyous to hear those words. Absolutely joyous. Amazing. And and I saw the prosecutors, you know, I guess typical for this case, but they were sort of poor losers. Usually prosecutors afterwards say, you know, something like we respect the jury's verdict. But in this case, they they made some argument that the jurors didn't understand the instructions or something like what, what was that craziness? Oh, that was just awful. So they returned the verdict unanimous on every single count, the RICO, the wire fraud, the mail fraud, the tax evasion. And then the judge invites the jurors back into his chambers. So we don't get to talk to them yet, but the verdict is entered and the media is out there, you know, in a feeding frenzy. And he, he has them back in his chambers and he has them back there forever. I mean, it just seemed like, what the heck is going on? And then he sends his clerk out and he said, I've, no, I've, I've, I've put the jurors back in the jury room. That was it. Because we have a problem. Like, well, what's that? Well, in talking to the jurors after the verdict, it sounds like there were a couple of jurors that were holdouts for guilty, at least on some of the counts. And that some of the other jurors said to them, well, look, if this instruction right here says that you have to be unanimous. And so if you're agreeing on some, we're agreeing unanimously on some, then we, we should be agreeing unanimously on all. And that the, those other jurors, the holdout jurors on some of the counts said, oh, is that what that means? And they said, yeah, that's what that means. So they changed their verdict from not from guilty to not guilty because the jurors said, well, if you're unanimous on some, then you're unanimous on all. Is that an accurate reading? No, but it doesn't matter if one of the jurors said to the other juror, you know, I read your fortune this morning and it told me that you really want to both not guilty. And right. goes, okay, all right. It doesn't, I mean, the bottom line is they rendered the, it's not like someone threatened them. It's not like someone got to them. Um, it was one juror rationalizing with another juror why they should be unanimous on everything. And, but somehow the prosecution hooked onto that and said, Your Honor, we need a mistrial. Like, wait, you can't mistry anything. We're done. The verdict is right. What are you talking about? Yeah. You, you don't get a do-over government. Double jeopardy is attached. Right. And so they were furious and they, they talked to the media then and they said, this is a carriage of justice. Some of these jurors didn't want to vote not guilty. Wow. And uh, it took it took a little bit away from our great shining moment, but not that much. Yeah, I can't, I, not that much. I hope you guys, what, what's the big celebration? What do you guys do uh, with, with DeLorean to celebrate? Because so many criminal defense lawyers, when they get the good verdict, it's like they have to be in court the next day. There's no time to celebrate. I hope, did you guys have time to celebrate this one? We did. Again, because it was getting so close to Christmas. I had nothing else on calendar except for getting home to my family and Howard too. So John took us out to, uh, actually, he took us out to the same restaurant that we ate at every night. <laughs> and it was called the London Shop House, I think. But this time we had capture champagne and we had all kinds of, instead of our almost uh, monk-like meals where we, because we were always so nervous during the trial, we didn't eat very much. But now we had a lavish bread and champagne flowed and we were, we were very happy and we did get to celebrate and it was nice to see John smile. So nice. And, and I bet Christmas in San Diego was a lot better than uh, Christmas in Detroit. Indeed. It was really good to get home and get out of the freezing cold. Well, this was just wonderful. Thank you for, for talking about the trial. And, um, you know, we hope to get you back to criminal defense one of these days. But, but in any event, thank you, Juanita. This was really great. 
Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was great fun. That was really cool. I want to thank Juanita Brooks for joining me uh, and doing that interview talking about the John DeLorean trial. What a crazy, interesting case and to be charged with two trials at once. And again, to walk both just like last week with Garagos and Susan McDougall. Amazing that DeLorean walked in both cases. Um, A big credit to his lawyers, obviously. And what a bunch of characters we've had on the show so far, from Bruce Rogo to Mark Garagos to Juanita Brooks. And you'll see as we move forward some of the really interesting criminal defense lawyers. That's one of the great things about being a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, You get to hang out with characters from all over the country. And we'll have some some real characters coming up, including Jerry Goldstein, uh, Jeff Feiger, and others. So I'm looking forward to speaking with them and catching up with you in the weeks ahead. Thanks again for listening to For the Defense with me, your host, David Oscar Marcus. Thanks. Thanks.